evening, afternoon, morning, whatever time it happens to be where you are, and welcome to Ace Comicals episode 119. We are on the edge of October. It's beginning, it's coming. Spooky season, yes. My favourite time of year. Yeah, forget Christmas, it's all about October. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they've got mince pies in the shops again, straight, like, already. I've been seeing, like, Christmas stuff. It's like, it's like October... It, Halloween doesn't hold the line anymore, man. It's like they just go straight to Christmas now. <laughs> as yeah, soon they, as Easter overlap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I don't like it. It's like they, they need. There's a, there's there's things in between. There's 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 sewing. There's Halloween. Let's celebrate that like we're supposed to. Yeah, but why don't uh, you Halloween stands just claim mince pies as something macabre? <laughs> <laughs> pumpkin pumpkin shaped mince pies pumpkins <laughs> pumpkin spice mince pies yeah oh you've ruined it you've ruined it <laughs> <laughs> i i got my first psl of course had you my did first, had my first psl enjoyed it no regrets i'm basic okay corporate autumn yeah <laughs> no regrets <laughs> so yeah um got an awful lot to chomp chomp through here so like Let's start at the top because we've got this new Marvel movie that's uh, hit the cinemas. This little little indie film called Shang Chi. I believe um, it's uh, closer to uh, Shang Chi, isn't it? Shang Chi. Yeah, I've been trying to wrap my head around the correct pronunciation and I can't do it, and uh, I apologise for that. But um, yeah, um, it is it is supposed to, it is supposed to be pronounced something like Shang Chi. But uh, forgive me for the incorrect pronunciation. They have this whole scene about it in the film, which is quite fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with um, Aquafina just completely knocking it out of the park, chewing the scenery. But yeah, for like the whole film. <laughs> um, what did you think of it anyway? What did you make of it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it yeah. more than I was expecting. Not because I had any, not because my hype for the movie was like limited to any reason but i think maybe it's because the trailers did the good thing of not not revealing too much about the movie but then they also didn't display the action as well as they could because this movie has like the best mcu combat of, like of any of the things including the tv shows like oh yeah the combat here is incredible especially like for pg-13 martial arts it's it's really good like really well shot, really well framed. None of this constant cutting to to close ups so that the stunt performers can double easily. Obviously, that's still happening, but it's done in a much more Hong Kong Smooth. style. Yeah. Well, you're getting a lot more longer takes because yeah. the the stars themselves have had to train. Uh, and uh, learn various martial arts to a degree that they look good doing it on camera so that um, most of the time you can see their face and you can see their whole bodies as they're doing that and that makes such a difference I'm obviously grew up with Hong Kong like martial arts and that is my favorite stuff to see in film and after like the Matrix came out in 99 and Hollywood started to adapt more of that stuff. It was um, it was perfect for me because this is the action I like. And then we entered a period where Hollywood took the wrong lessons from the Bourne movies 
and went back to this awful, choppy, bad geography. You can't really understand what's going on too well because it, you get you're getting like the worst versions of it, like that taken free GIF, which has become a meme or video, where in the space of like maybe five seconds, where Liam Neeson's character is crawling up a, a fence. There's something like 18 different camera angles and edits or something in that in that simple thing, and we've we've got into that period, and and it's a lot in the Marvel movies because they they because they storyboard and previous their stuff quite early. You do get kind of like an empty bounciness to some of the action scenes and stuff, even when it's awesome, but you do get stuff where it, it, it's not as impactful. And the closest things that you've got to it being impactful was a with movies like Winter Soldier, where there was no one really not that superpowered in the movie, uh, beyond some super soldier serum. Uh, so you got a lot more nice combat. But even then, I mean, that movie came out in 2014, I believe, which is mm. the same year that Raid 2 came out. And the Raid 2, in my opinion, is one of the best, I guess, Western director martial arts movies, like of all time, in my opinion. So, mm. like, it, it's really nice to actually see this, like, cool, well shot, kinetic combat in in this superhero movie and beyond that yeah it was a fun ride it's, it's a good interest story as of a lot of these marvel movies they do borrow beats from other movies so there's tiny bits of like black panther and and, and other things in here but i think it does well to establish itself and give itself a unique voice and give its main hero a sort of compelling through line especially the relationship with the antagonist of the movie who is one of my favorite actors of all time, Tony Leung, who is just an a- absolute goat. So, and this is the first Western movie he's ever been in. So for me, it was just uh, anytime he's on screen, I'm just happy. Just just watching him, just watching him look, watching him act with his face and his eyes. And I mean, he's a master. So like, it's fun to see him doing his thing, and it's fun to see the movie get to be unapologetically Asian American in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's an element I really liked. And it's also like in in other areas like to do with music and stuff like that, it really does feel like American with like the blending of like uh, Asian American hip hop and, and uh, like the, the stars and fashions and stuff like that. It, it really is a good blending of that. And it doesn't, I think it walks the line really well where it doesn't, uh, exoticize the more mystical elements as much they just become their own fantasy lore and that is quite fun and um so yeah like for me overall it's not i wouldn't say it's in my like top top cream of the crop mcu ranking probably more towards the the middle upper middle but as an origin story i really enjoyed it and i'm looking forward to watching it again yeah How about yourself? I, I need to see it a second time um, I watched it the first time and um, I really, really, really enjoyed it. I Like you're saying, it doesn't exoticize the fantasy elements and it, it, it's its own thing while also tying neatly into what's going on in the MCU at the moment. Um, and I really liked how they managed to tie it in and how the fantasy elements of this movie, while being their own thing, are just the same universal fantasy elements uh, of other MCU ta- MCU movies or, or other parts of the MCU viewed through a different lens. Mm. Um, because all of this stuff is connected 
and yeah it's like everything you've got the doctor strange angle and you've got and and then i one of my favorite bits that i can't talk about because it's a spoiler (laughs) because it's a it's a it's a, a it's going to be a minor spoiler but it's a minor spoiler for a character that pops up that I got really excited about in the cinema when I saw it but yeah and it's not who you think it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah like um did you know do you know who I mean Leon No I'm trying to narrow it down um but you'll have to tell me postcast I'll tell you postcast yeah but yeah, it's um, it's it's very cool, and uh, it's it's I it was a top Marvel movie, and like you said, with the martial arts action, it was a martial arts film, and it was it was a good martial arts film, and there's some incredible fight scenes in that movie that just completely blew me away, and start to finish, I was just in for this film and everything about it, and. Uh, yeah, I just, I can't wait for more. I can't wait for more MCU stuff that kind of like ties into this or uses parts of this. And uh, I just, I just want to see where the whole thing's going. Because um, I'm, I'm excited to see the next phase because the, the thing I thought they were going to do, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, maybe they did part of it. Mm. Um, and I'm still on the fence about whether they did it or didn't do it. And whether they ended it or didn't end it, or whether there's still more to come, and thinking about who the next, what the next big threat is going to be in the MCU, yeah. and how they're going to tie it all together, and everything else. And I'm hoping it's more of a mystical threat. And uh, I just want to throw um, Secret Defenders in there. So rather than there being another Avengers film, would it not be Doctor Strange's Secret Defenders? I don't know. Very possibly, you'll have to see I, what I hope what, so. uh, what Disney's marketing department says does, I, does better in the PR. <laughs> fully, fully hope so. Yeah, um, if um, Disney, if Disney managed to keep hold of their rights, to the uh, they will. They will. <laughs> Mickey Mouse always finds a way. Yeah, there's a yeah, thing going on sadly. at the moment. Yeah, um, is it Ditko's estate that's suing? I think it's Ditko. I don't think it's just yeah. Ditko though. Yeah. Um, but basically, uh, the whole, I think the, 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 the easiest way to put it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Leon, but they're suing to stop Marvel retaining the rights to the characters after the copyright runs out, because there's this whole thing going on where, um, these big, um, companies like Marvel, Disney and whatever, like copyright is finite and then copyright runs out and these characters are supposed to become, um, sort of public after that but marvel are um going to renew the copyright and this lawsuit is trying to stop marvel from doing that is that right i'm no copyright lawyer and i read this story like ages ago and i don't have it in front of me so that's all my caveats so i think it's something like that but i think it's uh, a mix of a few things Something like this happened with DC a couple of years ago, I believe, and um, DC won the case for, for all intents and purposes. So, um, yeah, it's a weird one because, like, Disney are known to be monsters of copyright um, and have 
done a lot to sort of push out the copyright on things like Mickey Mouse for way longer. And so they're sort of the, the boogeyman of, of modern copyright law in America. Uh, and I think this is a mix of the estates sort of requesting their fair share, yeah. um, but also a, a battle with corporations uh in in a way i mean not to get hyperbolic about it, but threatening art to a degree because going a bit like doing what they're doing and remove not letting things into the public domain and also um like having it be that the works created by people who work for the company it remains as a like work for hire contracted thing uh we've seen how that's been borne out through the decades where creators who created all these things which are making companies billions of dollars in uh in like film uh box office receipts uh streaming uh sub subscriptions and merchandising um the person who gets a special thanks in the end credits might get like a five thousand uh dollar check and it's like what out this the, is for a movie that grows billions well yeah yeah, yeah. all together <laughs> as gross billions it, it yeah that that type of stuff is is ridiculous and yeah. um but it's the way how those contracts and stuff will set up so the uh le less generous people who just want the machine to run will be like well they shouldn't have signed it and blah 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 that's how it goes in business whatever that but i think it's uh I, th I think it's short-sighted and like kind of ridiculous to take stances on the side of corporations who've like for pretty much screwed over the their creators uh who some of those creators in part were screwing over their creators at the time so i th i think it's just it's a ridiculous thing that is contingent on us to be like we want the machine uh we want our toys to play together because this this similar things like this or sentiment happened with the disney fox buyout where yeah. as a as an action for like art and cinema that was a terrible decision that shouldn't have allowed think uh shouldn't have been allowed to happen because basically two massive studios were allowed to like like combine giving disney even bigger foothold in, in the industry and uh you end up with a sort of like monoculture where now yeah. it's, it's disney's way or the highway for a lot of these things but most people just like, wanted fantastic four back that's what they wanted they're like give mm. us fantastic four we want fantastic four and x-men in the mcu that um but it's really short-sighted like uh, it's better that Sony and Disney are separate companies, but they get to do the Spider-Man movies together. Like, but people could not foresee a future of that. They just wanted uh, Fox to be gobbled up. And I mean, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but that was already born out to be a horrible decision. But in mind, like Disney focused more on PG-13 movies. And also uh, in the US, especially, they basically have stopped uh, repertory screenings of all like 20th century Fox uh, movies. So if you wanted to 
you know, like cinemas all across the, the world. Uh, over here, you got like the Prince Charles Cinema and, and various like it, like do like show, showings of old movies, and they'll have a night where they put on blah 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 blah. Now it's really hard to put something like Alien on or Aliens for an audience because, uh, especially in the US, because Disney are not are not put, basically put a block on all of that stuff and like. To not be able to watch a lot of those movies in cinemas is kind of not good for cinema, in my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, ultimately, um, go back to my caveats about not having any idea what I'm talking about in, in terms of this case in uh, specifically. I think that it's not a great thing for these massive monster uh, machines mm. to be able to steamroll over stuff that. Uh, and and steamroll over stuff and control it forever um, yeah. so they can keep the the machine going. And part of me, even though I, I want to see Phase 4, Phase 5, and see all the stuff going, part of yeah. me thinks it'd be really hilarious if Disney <laughs> lost <laughs> Spider-Man and like yeah. uh, a bunch of a bunch of other people. Like, if they lost them next year and they couldn't use them anymore, what would they do? Like, I'd love to see what happens. A, a lot of people who listen to this probably w- would have my head for saying that, but I just think it'd be funny to see what they would do because that that would be a, a a mad scramble to be to like try and fix yeah, all this stuff if they like, lost like half their character. You might you might get to see things like um, male arachnid and steel <laughs> human. So <laughs> there you go, uh, or or um, MD weird instead of Doctor Strange. I don't know. Uh, so like, I might termite man uh <laughs> the possibilities are endless yeah, exactly yeah um yeah so i'm just looking at the hollywood reporter now because this is where i've uh i this is where i found this so um so i'll just read this little bit out from the hollywood reporter article the complaints which the hollywood reporter has obtained come against the heirs of some late comic book geniuses including stan lee steve ditko and gene colin the suit, this is Marvel suit, seeks declaratory relief that these blockbuster characters are ineligible for copyright termination as works made for hire. If Marvel loses, Disney would have to share ownership of characters worth billions. So basically, Disney just don't want to pay, which is really sad and really disgusting. But there we go. Um, yeah, and... Uh, so that's what's going on with that at the minute. So yeah, look out for uh, Iron Human and uh, Arachnid. <laughs> Steel Man. Yeah. <laughs> Steel Man, yes. And uh, MD Weird. <laughs> so um, yeah, um, other than that, I uh, I went to this thing in Coventry called Meanwhile. Um, called Meanwhile in Coventry, which was 18th and 19th September. Um 18th of September also happened to be uh, Batman Day, which was kind of cool. Um, I'll come on to that in a moment because I, I did do something for Batman Day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I went to Meanwhile, which is a... Um, it was they, call, it, they say it's a hands-on creative weekend with plenty of free activities, inspired by the amazingly broad world of comics and illustrated storytelling. Um, in late, It's an illustration festival slash mini comics convention um it had the uh the thought bubble style um tents you know with the people 
the the uh, dealers' tables and the uh, yeah. artist tables and things like that, and you were able to go and talk to people and buy comics, and it was nice after a a year and a year plus of not being able to do things like that. It was cool. It was all very safe. People wearing masks, um, hand sanitizer on every table. Um, there was a graffiti, an outdoor graffiti competition, which was fun to watch. Um, that was called battle boards. That was interesting and really fun. There was this thing called drink and draw, which, um, they ran at night, um, where they gave you booze and gave you paper and pens to draw pictures, but I didn't get to go to that. Awfully reckless. I know, right? Like, how many dicks Drinking do you think... Drinking and drawing? <laughs> it's like, just, just how many dicks do you think there were that day? Like, <laughs> how many dick pics? No, but I didn't um, I didn't get to go to that. I um, I went to the uh, the soft drink and draw in the daytime, which was the one for kids <laughs> where they were serving juice and herbal tea. Because <laughs> I had to catch the bus back. So I went for juice and herbal tea and drew a picture of the Hulk. Um... And um, we did uh, all sorts of other stuff um, that was there. We like sort of milled about a bit, went and saw some of the artist tables. I bought some stuff. Um, if you go to the Ace Comicals Twitter account, you can kind of see my little thread about the whole thing. Uh, the coolest thing I bought happened to be um, a, a collection of art in tribute to jack kirby called curvy vision which was a uh, collage art by jason garrettly um and this is something that comes from something he did for the curvy museum so he had a blog called um a a blog called curvy vision uh which he set up for people to do art in tribute to jack kirby and it became like a, an ongoing blog a collection where people would submit art they've done in tribute some professionals things like that, you know, and anyone who wanted to pay tribute to Jack Kirby. And then this, this blog grew and grew and grew. And then the, uh, the Kirby museum took over the blog and kept it going. Um, so the Kirby, this is the Kirby vision blog exists on the, the Kirby museum, uh, site. So you can head over to kirbymuseum.org and check it out. Um, and it is a wonderful, wonderful collection of Jack Kirby inspired art. Uh, people doing things in the style of Jack Kirby, people using Jack's art to make collages, like as is most of the stuff in this Kirby Vision book that I've got. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just incredible. So, yeah. Um, and that was one of the cooler things I bought. Um, me being the Jack Kirby stan that I am. Um, so, yeah, that was fun, which brings me on to another item of news, actually, because we don't often do news on Ace Comicals, but I, I feel like um, there's some things that we are worth talking about occasionally. Um, and this one is something that's it's resurfaced again, because this isn't the first time this thing has popped up in sort of like the consciousness of the um, the comics world and, and the fandom world and whatever else. But um, Jack Kirby... Um, kind of wrote a novel but didn't finish it and this was called the horde um and um he started work on this in 1969 never finished it um and then there's like another version of it from 79 um which is a 224 page manuscript and this recently resurfaced because um uh chuck rosansky um found a copy of it um in a collection that he acquired so um 
This is uh, Chuck Rosansky of Mile High Comics in the US. So he was um, he's acquired a gifted copy, um, which was gifted by Ros Kirby um, to the person who was the owner of this collection that is now passed into the hands of Chuck Rosansky. And he want, he said that he wanted to um, publish it. Um, or so so the CBR article went that he wanted to publish it. Um, and um, obviously this this became a thing on the internet straight away because it's like, is this Pandora's box? Dare we do this? <laughs> Should we publish an unfinished novel from 1979? I mean, it's not going to be the first time that any of it has seen print because there's been extrapolations of it or excerpts of it that have seen print in various anthologies and things like that over the years. Um and it's one of those things where the, the the whole thing just never quite made it out. Um, so as we as we, the story as we know it in this um, is like Jack Kirby imagining um, the next big conflict on Earth. So like beyond World War One, World War Two, like this would be the next big conflict and and him trying to imagine what part of the world that would come from and, and, and where this would be. And for him, this was China at the time. Um, and he had this whole kind of like sci-fi war story, this uh, kind of like prescient sci-fi, prescient sci-fi thing going on with this, uh, this Mongol warrior named... Uh, Tegujai Batir, who creates this underground tunnels throughout Europe and Asia. Um, and his army comes out of the tunnels and takes over certain portions of the earth. And then the, um, the, the refugees are forced out and this creates like a human tidal wave, which is where the book gets its name called the Horde. Um, and, it's um yeah so i mean it's one of those things where should we publish this should we finish it and publish it i don't know i feel like it's something that should remain unfinished i don't really want to see it i don't i don't necessarily feel like i need to see it out in the wild or to see it published and, and finished i think it should just remain a curio and an unfinished script i mean there's various things here citing interviews with Ros Kirby saying that he he would have wanted it finished or, or or say you know passing it on in the hopes that it would get released or finished um and it's just it's apparently it's, it's very well written and it's very well done um and it's um it's it's very meticulously researched and everything else on Jack's part but like I don't know man I don't know I mean what do you make of this Leon yeah, it's one of those things where I'm generally not one of those people who is hungry or entitled for incomplete works by people that I really like. It's always interesting when you do get an insight into that stuff, but it's not necessary for me. And there are just decades of Kirby work. work. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, we have but if it's the thing where uh, while he was here Kirby wanted the novel to be completed um, and the estate are able to 
find someone suitable to do so or if they just want to release it as is in its unfinished state then that's fine if it's a thing where like it was incomplete for a reason and Kirby didn't want it out there then I just don't really see the point in in, in seeing someone's draft of a, of a book it's mm. um it's not really the way they wanted to see it and maybe people probably differ with my opinion on this but I, I just feel that there's an entitlement that we can have sometime like this with creators where uh especially like mu- musicians who when then they die we want every little demo tape that they ever recorded no matter how incomplete no matter how loose the stems are on on a track they're working on we just need it we want that content any content from these deceased geniuses we just need to have and it's not really how how i feel about that i feel that if it's incomplete then they never completed it so i don't really see much benefit in in, a, in us getting it yeah uh, what, so, what is what would be the value in that yeah benefits yeah. a thing where like it's mostly completed and like it was it was a thing that he wanted out there then i don't really see an issue with it i mean i know that yeah. uh you, you might have some like hesitance with it due to like, the content and people might worry it's like a, a holy terror but like a pre-holy terror type mm-hmm. thing but i i think my view on this stuff is that's not a reason to not release the thing my thing to not release the thing is if it's just an incomplete work that the original artist didn't really want out there like yeah. hadn't completed it so it, it was not it was it was a draft not ready for people and they unfortunately died before it was completed but if it's a thing where it was in their intent for it to be released and the estate are happy to do so then i see and no harm ahead. in it yeah. because the way i see it, even say like the worst fears are true and it, it is uh, super sinophobic or whatever or wh- whatever the case is um i think that is just a thing that you deal with um critically that's something mm. that when you're doing your analysis and you're like your uh, critiques of the text that is something that is part of it but that's for me that's not a reason to not that, release that it. Yeah, yeah that solely is not a reason to to not release it because yeah. i mean like there's there's so much stuff like that like like, uh, like i've expressed this to you before i think if there's a thing where release of an old text or whatever might people might think it could incite hate or something like that then i guess that's one of the few areas where i'd be like yeah i mean we, we don't really need it yeah but but if it's a thing where it's just like oh it could be offensive this book that was being written in the 70s by this uh, old white dude uh could be offensive it's like yeah of course but i think that i don't think that robs it of an in like artistic significance and yeah. it's something that I, I think will be would be interesting to to read and delve into it and get inside that headspace but mm. yeah like uh, otherwise it for me it's about the intent because if it's like a, a cash grab like oh we've got this un unreleased kirby thing and obviously kirby's a goat so like there's going to be lots of interest in it I don't need that. Like, that's not it, something that I'd want. Yeah. If I was mega successful, I wouldn't want my grandkids no, doing no. doing that to my legacy. If if I want this finished, I want it to be a labor of love for somebody. Yeah. Or and because yeah. Or like release it in its unfinished state. Like whatever. Yeah. Like it, how how it gets delivered is not really 
mm. uh, too much of the issue. I think it's more a case of like the intent behind it and yeah. like what really is the the benefit of it yeah. all in the end. I mean, according to what I'm looking at here, um, I'm looking at uh, tomorrows.com, um, which is like an article from um, Jack Kirby Collector number 32, uh, which is about this uh, this manuscript. And um, this says that there is a record of how, at least at 1979, he would have ended it because there's like a five-page outline of where he would go from where the manuscript finishes. Mm. So it's like the bones are there, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the, it's in, it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on what actually happens with it. Because like I said before, there's been various points where parts of it have made it into print in various shapes and forms over the years in, in like anthologies and such. Um, and it's one of those things that's just kind of been there, but not there. I wouldn't quite say it was in development hell because he he didn't finish it and he stopped writing it like um, on purpose because um, according to um, what Ros Kirby says in an interview, he stopped writing it because certain events in it were happening in real life and it frightened him mm. to write the ending. Um, he got scared because he said every time he was writing something, it was coming true in the newspapers. <laughs> so... Um, it's kind of like one of those things where he had this this fear of finishing it and also, I don't know. I mean, I'd, it would be really interesting to see as an Definitely. artifact. Especially uh, it would, because yeah. it's his only um, foray into like novel writing. So yeah. that in itself makes it very notable. Yeah. I mean, maybe they should just like print the manuscript as is at the back of a collection of Kirby comics or something as like a, you know, like extra back matter. Mm. I mean, material. <laughs> if, if they really do want to finish it and if the management, mm. if there is a, a road for how he would have wrapped it up, I think if they want to get someone in to do it, cause I mean, that happens in novels all the time where like, uh, I think that happened with the yeah. will time or something where the author died and then uh, another author came in to finish um, their story. I think it's happened with some Pratchett books as well. So, yeah, it's yeah. not an uncommon thing. But I think it's really like they got to pick someone who really would fit the sensibility. But, like, you know, I think for me, I probably err more on the side of just drop the manuscript because that's yeah his work. Um, yeah. And it's not, it's not going to be the same when you get someone else in. But however they want to do it and if they do it... yeah. It'll be interesting. I just hope it's it's it is for a thing of like he wanted this work out there, get yeah. the work out there, and not some some cash grab. It's not somebody trying to make a quick book off a little little known piece of Kirby history. Hmm. Um, I noticed CBR took their article down. Well, they didn't take their article down. They took the tweet down. <laughs> oh really? I think yeah. I think the article's still there, but the tweet's gone. So uh, I just noticed that actually just before we started recording, I was like, ah, sneaky CBR. Um, I think that was because of the heat that it was getting at the weekend. Um, very like uh, it, it was one of the. It became it be, for a little while. It became a little bit controversial. There was a few different people giving their takes on it and things like that. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I, I for one, if that 
it would be interesting to see this and to be able to have it and read it as an artifact. I would like it published as part of a, of a collection of Kirby stuff, maybe like an art book or something, like I said, um, a collection of comics with then this published in there as well as like a, a thing. But I don't feel like um, unless it's going to be unless it's going to be a labor of labor of love for somebody. And, and like you saying, unless unless it's going to be something the estate actually want or something that's on record that Kirby may have even wanted himself. I don't feel like it should be finished unless it unless it's unless those criteria are satisfied. I agree with you, Leon. Um, so moving on from there. um we might actually start talking about some actual comics reviews, but the, just before that, very quickly, Midnight Mass, which is like the third thing. Um, I want to call them a trilogy, but they're not a trilogy because they're not related in any way other than the fact that they're done by the same dude. Um, and that is like, uh, so you've got Midnight Mass, and this is coming from the same uh, creative, um, the same sort of creative lagoon as... Um, uh what are the other ones uh hill house and bly manor right yeah yeah um and uh, i've watched two episodes of it so far i quite like it it's really good but i also feel like it's the weakest of the three so far i don't know where you sit with it leon yeah i'm four episodes in and i can't make a judgment on how i, I would stack it with the rest but um so far i'm quite enjoying it it's it's something that I, yeah, when I would like to talk more in depth of once it's finished and go full yeah. spoiler. But mm. I think it is, and especially because there's things that I know that you don't know, which I think change the story yeah. quite a bit. But um, yeah, like I think what I find, I think for me, what makes these Flanagan things work, and especially this one, is the atmosphere and the tone. Um, I think that this one is a lot more talky in a more cerebral way. So it's dealing with like ideas and like um, ideologies and the way people like process stuff and, and view the world. And I, I find a lot of that stuff to be really um, engrossing. And I like how the Crockett Island is sort of this like microcosm through which to deal with a bunch of well not that's not a deal but for which it handles a lot of varying different personalities and traumas coming together uh and i, I think that, i think it has a lot to say and i think it's um it's playing with a different tool set to the uh the two haunting uh series and i find that quite enjoyable and it is fun that Flanagan and co have rounded up a lot of his regular co-conspirators to, to do this. It's, it's quite fun for me. It's like a better version of the Ryan Murphy, uh, American horror story series, which is an anthology mm. series uh, where like yeah. a lot of the same cast members play different characters and it's a completely different story in a different time era each season. Yeah. But while that, while that show tends to have really strong starts and really good premises and then like midway through kind of craps the bed, I feel like the Flanagan series, the ones that I've seen that are completed and this one so far 
seem to hold on longer and um, are, a, are a more satisfying tale for longer. Mm. And while in, in the past, I do have my issue with, with like... I mean, I love uh, Mike Flanagan's work. Um, I think I've seen pretty much all of his movies and the, the previous um, Haunting series. And I, I love all of his works um, in all different... For all different reasons, I think he just has a really keen eye and is really good at the sort of the in the interior interior dread that characters often feel. I think he's he's really good at that. Um, I generally think that his endings can be unsatisfying at times and he does have a few bad habits but i think for me those are like flavor really where it's just like they don't ruin the thing for me it's just like it stops stops his thing from being perfect but like i i still have a good time with them and on this show in particular uh i'm having a, a good time with it i think it's um i think it's dealing with things very different from hill house and blind manor and uh, the uh, the Shining sequel he did and and some of the other stuff he's done, and I think that um, it I th- I think it's taking like a slower pace. And, and another thing, I think that it's weird of these things because when you deem something horror, a lot of people have horror as one thing, which is like constant scares, and Flanagan's work doesn't really do that. And like for me, that's fine because I, I like my horror very diverse and doing like for me, horror rather than just labeling it as a genre is in 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 a way its own medium because there's so many different ways to to use like to be in that space but do different things with it. And I think his stuff is heavy on the character, and that's a wheelhouse that I really enjoy. But for other people who who do want their scares this show will give you less than the previous shows that you'll know him for. And even those didn't ha- really have much scares. So if it's a thing where you're going in for scares, uh, this will not be the show for you, I don't think. But yeah. I think it's well worth watching, especially if you like those things. It, it, uh, it's doing something. It's freeing, freeing itself from not being an adaptation of some sort. It's allowing itself to play with a few different ideas and have fun with them, but also like dive deeper into them. So I would recommend checking it out. But at the moment, like I said, I've only watched four of the seven episodes. So maybe I'll watch the next three and hate it. And I'll report on that in the next episode. But (laughs) but for the time being, I'm enjoying it for what it's done. I don't know where it, it, it ranks so far. Um, but that's something that I'll have to evaluate once I've finished. But um, yeah, I'm enjoying I th- it. I think I might like it more when I get deeper into it. We'll see. But at the minute, I feel like it is. I mean, it's not because I don't. Because obviously, you know, these these are like you say, they're different to your typical horror fair. They're not. It's not full of jump scares. It's not full of you know. It's it's different kind of horror. It's like a slow, malignant trudge. Most of the time. And I really like that. And I'm just, I'm just hoping it, because for me, this doesn't have the same build that the other two had. 
mm. so far. Like, there's not, it's not got the same um, underlying dread and terror that the, I mean, it has like a a a mood and a, an atmosphere, but it doesn't feel as powerful as the other two so far. Yeah, and, uh, and this we'll see. this is one as well where I think that if you watch the first episode alone, yeah you could think that this is just some drama for the most part. Because, yeah. like, uh, even, like, he'll have some, some Bly Manor, they had spooky goings-on in episode one, as well as, like, constantly building throughout the season. But this show is a lot... Not... It's slower-paced always seems like a pejorative, but that it's not usually a pejorative for me. But, like, it... The, the way how it's building up its horror is very different and it it's it's setting up a lot of uh a lot of pieces to mm. to be moved later on yeah um and it's more an introduction to the the island and its people than it is about like this is the horror but that i think it for me it was it, it was significantly spooky to get me to watch mm. the next episode yeah um and i watched those four back to back in a row so like it's it's doing its 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 job there but um, I, I think there's just other hooks as well because from the title you can tell like it's called Midnight Mass. Like there's a lot of like grappling with different like religious things. And for me, who came from like a, a religious background, especially in my childhood, there's a lot of that those push and pull and sort of the ideological inner war and sort of the debates to do with that and like uh, like, like Christianity butting heads with. Islam butting heads with atheism, butting heads with like general yeah. agnosticism. Like a lot of that stuff is really meaty, and they 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 chew into it quite well. And it's mm. that stuff is is really fun for me. But yeah, like it does. It, it, I think it does have some of the Flanagan stuff that we we were saying, where it's like, oh, you're doing that again. But I, yeah, I don't yeah, think we it... were saying that pre pre cast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I. From where I am in the show, it it's become like less of a thing, but yeah. it is still a thing. Especially, if it's a thing that I don't really care for in in this show. Uh, but I don't. It, it doesn't take up too much time, in my opinion. And yeah, uh, like the newer stuff that is done is, is is interesting. So yeah, yeah, those are my feelings so far. Yeah. So um, speaking of horror. We're going to move on to um, our collection of comics for today. So we've got four books to discuss and we're going to open it right up with The Me You Love in the Dark. So we have two issues of this. Um, and this is an Image Comics publication and this is story by Scotty Young, art by Jorge Corona, colours by Jean-Francois Bolio and lettering by Nate Piercos of Blambot. Um, so... This is a strange, like, dusky, low light, remnants of the light before the cold, dark sets in type of story. Um, it just has that vibe going for it from page one. Um, and it is, I think it's like, it's spot on exactly what you want to be reading this time of year. I wouldn't say it's an October horror comic. I'd say it's a September horror comic. <laughs> <laughs> like for real like this is this is the the time of year to read it like september um 
Anywho, the blurb. So, um, writer Scotty Young and artist Jorge Corona um, follow up their critically acclaimed series Middle West with a brand new haunting tale. An artist named Roe retreats from the grind of the city to an old house in a small town to find solace and inspiration without realising the muse within is not what she expected. Um, apparently you'll like this if you're a fan of Stephen King or Neil Gaiman and uh, it is a beautiful, dark and disturbing story of uh, discovery, love and terror. So I kind of get, I get the Gaiman, the Gaiman thing because it does have those like shadow cast fairy tale vibes um and it's this idea of an extra natural slash supernatural muse like uh, so the first question you've got to ask when you're reading this is is roe the tool or is the uh the 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 spirit slash force the tool like who is using who here right um is this a malevolent force uh finding a tool or a host or is this a is this something else where roe is finding a muse and uh, as with these types of stories usually is this the t- is this sort of thing is this relationship going to backfire um i i think it, it really does perfectly sort of like capture the ghostly presence and the isolation and it really does get across because she's she's here suffering artist block that's why she's left the city to try and try and free her mind a bit to get to get her the juices flowing again get some work going um and she's really struggling with that and like the first half of the first issue is basically her just not feeling it (laughs) um and uh yeah it it just really does it it really sets up the atmosphere really well uh you've got these beautiful panels with these like huge big windows in this like wonderfully designed house um you know with like the the dusky light pouring in while she's working and it's just it just feels like it's constantly sunset in september it really does yeah i do get that september feeling yeah um it's like um you know, you go into these old houses, like these old little uh, terrace houses in the UK is the easiest way to put Because this is a big old house in the US, but old little terrace houses in the UK, you walk in and they're narrow and they have windows and they let light in. But there's always, a sh- it's always shadowy. It's never quite, there's something weird about it. It's there's because, something, yeah, because yeah. light can only come in from like the front or the back. Yeah, there's something liminal about it. It's, it's weird. <laughs> Yeah, so often, like, the yeah. hallways and staircases and stuff don't have any natural light going into them, or very it, limited natural light. Yeah, and this book, this book is that. This book is that feeling. I, I've lived in one of those houses. I, I and, and when I read this book, I'm going back and living in that house. It's just, it's just how it is. Um, yeah, and we, we just get this gorgeous, delicate comic art full of life and movement and just twisted enough um and yeah those dark fairy tale vibes it it, this entity that's just creeping about the house just shrouded in shadow like appearing harmless but does it have an insidious agenda like who's using who like i was saying before um and this artist muse relationship that it explores 
Um, but at the end of the day, is the entity the artist? Who knows? Um, you'll need to read the rest of it to find out. I'll need to read the rest of it to find out because there's only two issues uh, so far. Um, yeah, this the imposing architecture of this house is just beautiful. And like getting onto the lettering because there's this like beautiful gorgeous depiction of an indication of music so when she's listening to music she puts a record on and we get this like really gorgeous effect in the art of this like um this depiction of music sort of like waving through the air um and it, it just looks amazing and i i am really into that i think that is like for me just uh, i i i don't know like that is that's like somehow someone has managed to capture a, a a feeling something that i can only like it's some someone has managed to capture something so intangible and place it on the page in that way like i i don't know if that was um the letterer or the artist actually i feel like it might be the artist i think it might be might be um jorge corona doing that um where he's got this like white sort of like wave across some of the panels. Yeah, in some ways it's sort of like a negative yeah. ink blot in some ways where Yeah. Uh it's it's like a a a white line has been splashed throughout the scene going in and out of objects. Well not in and out but like back and forth. Around and yeah. Uh, yeah, it, uh, between car- uh, like the person and the background. But it's not it's not like musical notes or it's not even sheet music. It really is almost binary in some ways, where it like there's yeah. slashes within the white, which some are thin, some are thick, but they're not uniform. Um, and they're they, when you get to bigger chunks of of the, of the sound, it almost looks like like objects um, inside yeah. it, but it's all very abstract. It's piano key. Yeah, but it's not. It's not quite. Yeah. 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 And and I, I like that because it's like someone has managed to capture something so um so so abstract, so Yeah, uh, so intangible. Because yeah. it, 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 it I think what it what's so great about it and why it, it it was striking for you and striking for me is that instead of it being like this is music playing, it kind of feels like it's a thing of like when, you know when you're listening to music Music yeah. isn't just your hearing sound. It's the sort of the conversion is happening in your brain in a way where it's um, from speaker to air. It's like, it is like magic flying through the air in some way. It's this ethereal force, which yeah. uh, goes around your home as you move from room to room and you've got music playing. And it, the way this is depicted to be like a, a lilting Kind of like um, how an aroma works in an old cartoon. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it kind of has that sort of uh, gaseous quality to it as it like uh, swoops uh, up and down and in and around. It, it, it So I like the fact that it isn't just clear. It, it feels like it's pure music, if you know what I'm implying with that. Yeah. Where it's, yeah. It, yeah it, it's that middle thing that we can't interpret. It's, it's the vibrations as like, as as uh, displayed visually in some way like this there's, there's something yeah. otherworldly about it and that's what that's what i think works really well is it is synthesis 
Yeah, synesthesia. That synesthesia. That's it. Yeah. yeah, I can never say that word. <laughs> um, I can taste it though. Uh, no, like it's. <laughs> yeah, it just it just like as it sort of like waves and sort of like, kind of like makes its way through the rooms and and spirals and and ebbs and flows its way around. It just it's just so cool. Um, and it's like it's the other lettering as well. Like I can't not talk about the lettering where the voice of the. Um, when when Ro is having a, a temper tantrum and smashing up her uh, her easel, um, and you got the emphasis on her, you know, like try not mate, so try making not shitty art, and it's just like it just you can feel it, like the anger in it and everything, like it just has that emphasis. And then when you get to the um, the lettering for the the lettering design for the uh, the, the 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 entity itself which it just looks like a, a, a creaking shadowy low drag. Like that's, that's my way of describing how that sounds mm. almost like a, like an, a, just the creak and, and scrape of rusty hinges or something, you know, um, like part or like, like part of the house, like, like it's speaking through like knackered creeping, creaking floorboards or something like that, you know, Mm. and it just it just looks so good and it just how it evokes that like how like lettering magic man like how how i always i can never get past how lettering artists are able to do things like that and and just to to evoke a certain sound or feeling in that way and i'd love i'd love to get more insight into that process and i guess we're going to aren't we because the guy who lettered this uh nate piercus is is writing the essential guide to comic book lettering um which i've got pre-ordered and will be available soon <laughs> so um i think i turned you on to that as well didn't i yeah I, I i showed you it when it came up i was like yeah you need i mean like yeah that's like real deep stuff that is like getting into like the inner workings. i'd look i just want to know the inner workings of lettering i want to i want to know more about how it works because it's just incredible how how these voices could appear in my head based on what I'm seeing yeah. on the page and, and uh, like how certain fonts and lettering, certain styles of lettering can evoke certain voices and noises and sounds or, or even it, it, like innotation or, or cadence or whatever. It's just so good. Yeah. And I think it's, it's quite a misunderstood art form and it, it follows a lot of ignorance where oftentimes people don't really understand lettering and oftentimes avoid just speaking about it when talking about comics as a whole um but i think that it's like ignoring lettering is just ignoring an essential part of the art and i think that i think there's so much more to understand uh when you can get an idea about like if you can break down what lettering is doing, how lettering is doing it and its intended outcome, I think that it will help you understand a lot more about the process, but also uh, the art itself in context. Mm. I, I I can't wait to, to be, I can't wait for this knowledge to this, this knowledge to be in my hand. Like I just, I want to, cause I, I, 
I'm looking at it and I'm trying to talk about it now and I'm doing my best, but I need, I need the tools. I need the tools. But yeah, no, it just, it just looks, it's so cool. It really is. And um, like I, I start to finish, I was immersed in this. Uh, and it is, it is 100% my type of horror tale. Um, and yeah, I, I like issue two. Issue two has some really, really, really cool pages. Like some of my, one of my favorite pages is in issue two, actually. Um, and just the expression and the, just the amount of movement and everything in this is just great. It's a great, great little horror story. And I fully recommend you pick it up and check it out if you want something a little bit, um, a little bit this time of year. That's uh, the Me You Love in the Dark. Um, and that is published by Image Comics. And I fully recommend you check that one out. Uh, next on our list. Uh, we're, gonna mar we're going to Marvel now. So we are now going to Khazar, Lord of the Savage Land. Uh, which is a Marvel book. And uh, it is by um, writer Zach Thompson, uh, artist uh, Jermaine Garcia, uh, color artist Matthias Lopez, and uh, lettering by VCs Joe Caramagna. So, Kazar, the Lord of the Savage Land, where do we begin with this? Now, like you were saying to me precast that. I would need to explain some things. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Kazar started life in the golden age of comics. Um, and first to bear the name Kazar, first character to bear that name was a, a guy called, a character called David Rand, uh, who was created by Martin Goodman, whose pen name was Bob Bird. First appearance in October 1936. Um, and this ran from... Uh, th uh, January to there, it was October 1936 and then January to June 37. Serialized in Marvel Comics and Marvel Mystery Comics up to number 27 in January 1942. So he was originally more of a Tarzan analog, uh, than he is in his current iteration. Um, and he was uh, like even down to the fact that he was based in the Congo originally. So originally he operated in the Congo. Um, and, uh, he was fighting to protect emeralds in the Congo from colonizers, etc. And he... Tarzan, uh, and, uh, he also had a run in with the human torch. Um, the, the, the first human torch in, in Marvel, Marvel comics. Um, we fast forward to the current iteration uh, of Kazar, which is Kevin Plunder, who is a silver age hero. Um, Written by Kirby and Lee, so Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, and uh, I think so. So he's like a Silver Age iteration of this Kazar character that was a Marvel character, um, but what they did was they kind of like Kirby'd it up a bit. <laughs> so um, this has more in common with this has this is Tarzan, but also has something in common with Joe Kubert's. Um, caveman character called Tor. Um, first appearance of this iteration of Kazar was in X-Men number 10 in 1965. Um, and 
instead of a lion, which he had originally, he now has a pet Smilodon, which to uh, the layman's out there is a saber-toothed tiger. Um, so Kazar and his uh, his pet his pet Smilodon uh, Zabu live in the Savage Land, which is in Antarctica. Which, as we know from we know where the Savage Land from previous Marvel comics, from X Men books, heavily featured in X Men books. Um, and he is the um, he is Reginald. He is Kevin uh, Reginald, which is the son of Lord Robert Plunder. Um, he's like Tarzan with a bit of a sci-fi edge. It's some classic uh, sci-fi stuff. Um, and yeah, he's Kevin Reginald Plunder, Lord, son of uh, Lord Robert Plunder. Um, so like the whole thing with him is he was raised by Zabu who had near human intelligence thanks to some, uh, a mutation caused by radioactive mists. So can it get more Kirby than an isolated biome in the middle of the Antarctic uh, with, with prehistoric creatures that have near human intelligence because of radiative, radioactive mist? I do not think so. Um, so he died during the Marvel Empire event. Um, and uh, he's in a relationship with Shanna the sea, She-Devil who is another Marvel character and they have a child called Matthew who is the kid in this book um, so yeah he died in the Empire event and was resurrected as part of that event so he died he was resurrected and since his resurrection he has a closer connection to the land um, and he's still getting used to it, hence his grogginess and the weird kind of like off-centeredness at the beginning of the book, where he's having trouble adjusting to his newfound connection and his new, like the fact that he can feel and hear almost everything, almost Swamp Thing-like in that way, or, but I guess, I don't know, kind of like a somewhere in the middle between Swamp Thing and Animal Man, I guess is where we can kind of put this. Uh, because it has that Animal Man bio-horror shit going on, as we'll find out. So, um, where we catch up with this now, something is afoot in the Savage Lands. Um, death affected Kazar, it, it gave him a deeper connection to the land, and there have been changes. Um, and yeah, it's just this this really cool, vibrant eco-horror um lots of you know really timely commentary on like i guess global warming i guess and, and you know mutation and the way that we're affecting our environment and things like that and this strange parasite working its way into the land um i mean like what did you make of this then leon because obviously you didn't have the background info i had so no all i knew was what the savage land was um yeah yeah. But yeah, it, it it did seem like I assumed some like Tarzan XP because I'd never heard of this character before. Mm. And like reading the opening page where they reintroduce you to the Savage Land, uh it did feel like it was trying to grapple with with like what historically would have been Quite uh, uh, had a, a more uh, like empire like focus where you, you have like the white savior going to like the third world and being the hero there as what it sounds like the original iteration is and with yeah. this it does feel like um, 
like grappling with with some of that a bit um where in here they they refer to there being indigenous tribes who who reign in the emerald ecosphere so like i was it's interesting to see like a take on that trying to do like having to deal with like sort of a colonial era hero but but trying to have it be like less colonial and yeah yeah, it, it's, it's, it's weird because this isn't my type of story. I've never been a big Tarzan fan. And I generally am not like the biggest sort of like, you know, uh, this is not really related, but like sort of fantasy Savage Lands type stuff. Like my only interaction with the Savage Lands has been X-Men, especially when uh, Professor X and Magneto are trapped there and spending time with buddies. Professor X can walk? <laughs> yeah (laughs) so like this isn't usually this isn't really my my wheelhouse but it is interesting seeing the uh like this sort of tarzan thing but mixed with this sort of biomagic science stuff and uh how like shana creates like this this garment which uh it's like biotech or something and it becomes like sentient like those elements of it where it becomes like i don't know it's not really biopunk is it but like that stuff is quite interesting and how they like just the different designs of how they interact with the different dinosaurs that are out there and how certain dinosaurs are like ridden like mounts like steeds and then they gotta watch out for your your t-rexes and stuff out there and yeah it it is odd because then you have like this is it matthew the younger character uh and it, it goes super like hard into what this is super quickly where i'm just like well what's going on now what's going on now so yeah. it does it does come thick and fast at you, but I do like the design of the what I'll refer to as like the infection or the rot. Like that that stuff is pretty cool. Mm. Um and I do like the the colouring throughout. It has this In- interesting that you call it the rot. Because <laughs> cause again, you're you're really dipping into that animal man vocab. <laughs> uh... <laughs> but like, yeah, like, I do like the use of like it has these like browns and and like yellows out out as they're like fighting t-rex and stuff and like yeah it it has a lot a more um not unique but it's it's dabbling with a palette which is not muted but it's not it's almost like watercolor but without being watercolor if you know what i mean yeah 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 everything has a bit more of a sort of washed pale tone to it um and then that is uh overlaid with your your strong sort of goldish yellows and your your oranges and and your sort of your light reds and Mm. yeah like it has like a really sort of nature feel to it and i guess that does fit this uh aesthetic but it, it it is it is weird like i don't really know like I'm not immediately grabbed by the characters, if you know what I mean. So like I don't really have the connection with them trying to solve 
what the thing is going on. And I, I don't know if that is just me butting up towards sort of like the general like character idea and like or if it's just a case where these not being my types of story acts as a barrier but yeah I, I, it doesn't doesn't it, like, i'm not uh gripped despite myself if you know what i mean yeah, but, yeah, but but I I do think there's like so many ideas on the page, and they're exp- expressed quite in in a quite a pretty manner. That like it it's it's a good it's a nice book to look at, but like without my investment, the the text ends up flying over my head in a way where I don't really engage with. It. I'm just like, what is this blonde kid doing, and what uh what are these parents up to, and like, but I I do like the different reveals of how like how they use their sort of technology and how they interact with the world around them but um yeah i'm not i'm not I'm not sure like if, if i'm on the same page as this book if you know what i mean yeah yeah i understand um for me it's just it has this like really cool vibrant eco horror vibe and the mutation and the, the the whole kind of like commentary on the with with the whole thing like being kind of like side eye or commentary for um the economic crisis that's going on at the moment it i kind of like that sort of stuff and i like um I like when people play with nature in interesting ways and i i like it because it's the savage land and the savage land may as well be another planet hmm um that's the way i look at the savage land sometimes um because it's like it, it's like a throwback to prehistoric earth but it, it, it almost it because it's like its own thing within antarctica it may as well be its own planet sometimes it's great yeah because it is um, kind of like like a hollow earth location yeah yeah exactly um the whole thing is like completely off center and deftly strange it's like has this like real weird atmosphere from the get-go and i like the art because it it perfectly captures the um the variety and the lush diversity of the environment and it also um manages to show the extent of the violent and intrusive horror the the rot as leon calls it um like this this parasite whatever it is that's working its way into the savage land um and it, it works psychologically and physically to pervert and alter the savage land and it's it's kind of horrifying in that way and it's it's kind of like a nice um a nice exploration of how uh i guess i guess it's uh, my interpretation of it is how how people affect the environment when we go to places where we don't belong um it's um yeah it's it's beautiful delicate and expressive art it's full of movement and and bounce and color and it's like some really incredible just top quality work lettering wise as well there's some really cool effects in there and i just i don't know i just i i feel like this is um it's like they've taken the 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 things that this this character is is a Tarzan analog, and they're getting away from it. And it's like they've taken that and done something a bit more meaningful with it. 
in my eyes. Like they've taken it and they've made it a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Worthwhile, I guess. Um, and I think that's what like because obviously the Silver Age iteration is where all of this begins, and I think with with the Silver Age Kazar versus the Golden Age Kazar, which was basically Tarzan with a different name. Um, they have um, kind of like taken it, take, it's taken on that sci-fi edge, which I think is what saves it from getting stale or being the typical white saviour stuff. Yeah, because it, like, yeah. it is in conversation with that stuff, especially where like yeah. uh, Matthew's having this sort of uh, like monologue to himself where he's complaining about his parents and calling them hypocrites and uh, yeah, like making fun of that, like his dad's name is Plunder. Yeah. And it, 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 it is obviously uh, like dealing with, with the baggage that comes with this hero and this hero's inspiration and stuff. Mm. Um, so like that element is interesting and it, it'll, it, it would be, it would be more interesting, like going forward, it would yeah. be super interesting if rather than this being a, a lampshade, if it was actually like to like squaring the circle and uh, like doing something super meaningful with that, which it feels like it is. Mm. Um, I, I think that like, like there's a lot of meat on that bone to do and say interesting things with that. Yeah, and I and I think that is definitely um, something that is is happening here. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, it, it's um, it's a coolish, it's a cool book, and uh, I, I kind of wanna, I, I wanna see the rest of it. I really do. Um, it's not even gonna be a long thing because it's there's only five of these things, so there's it's only gonna be five issues long, which is gonna be interesting. But yeah, um, I I want to see how it plays out. I want to see the rest of it. I want, I want my little dose of bio horror, please. And uh, yeah, it, I think it, it's um, it's a little bit, it's a little little great piece of Marvel, like um, Marvel macro microcosm type thing is what it mm. is, and it's pretty cool, and it embodies the Kirby spirit nicely, I think. Um, uh, I quite, I quite enjoy how uh, how it embodies that nice weirdness. I like it. Um, and that is uh, Marvel's Kazar, uh, Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land. Um, next new one we've got to discuss is a image comic that's been published called Primordial. Now this one's an interesting one. Um, so according to the blurb for this mind-bending sci-fi collides with cold war thriller in this six issue miniseries by the best-selling and eisner winning creative team behind gideon falls um and that is um jeff lemire jeff lemire and uh, andrea sorrentino um and uh yeah so in 1957 the ussr launched the dog Liker into earth's orbit two years later the usa responded with two monkeys which was the jupiter missions abel and baker uh, these animals never returned, but unbeknownst to everyone, they did not die in orbit. They were taken, and now they are coming home. So, for me, this is like sci-fi weird divergent timeline stuff. 
Yeah, alt because history. Alt history to, to the max, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's set during the Cold War, and uh, it's like late 50s, early 60s space race, but there's something wrong, something very off. Uh, we are in a divergent timeline, um, kind of like what if for real life is what I've got <laughs> written in my notes here, because that's what it is. It's like, yeah. Um, also, like, you know, shout out to, to Laika the Space Dog. Pull one out for Laika. Um, I've got a thing about Laika the Space Dog. I actually own a sweater with Laika on it. But yeah. Um, don't ask me why. I... You call me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not call me. I just... I just... <laughs> space dog man she went up into space so so that you know and and she sacrificed her life for the space race like the space like, dog like the saw stuff up there yeah i know she did <laughs> according to <laughs> well read primordial and find out exactly what she saw um but yeah so this is like alternate dimension like and the exist this also plays with the existence of extraterrestrial life in a way um like the early space missions the jupiter missions and sputnik 2 which is like the space dog sputnik um and like humanity found or so what's going on here is the, the, these missions via these missions humanity found or disturbed something they shouldn't have um in a world where nixon beat kennedy <laughs> It's the way that I've got it written down in my notes as if I'm talking on a movie trailer. So in a world where Nixon beat Kennedy, like that kind of thing, you know. Um, and it's like, did these space missions cause a ripple that changed the direction of history? Um, I'm feeling like Charlie Day now uh, <laughs> with all the bits of paper and like red, red strings, because that's how I felt reading this. Um, Leon, I'm going to throw to you for a bit so you can say something that makes sense. Uh, well, what I say might not make sense, but like, so like, as I was just uh, saying on the, for the previous comic, that like, that stuff generally isn't my wheelhouse. It, like, it, that type of like, I don't know, like, shirtless fantasy stuff isn't isn't really my thing. Shirtless fantasy, yeah, like riding <laughs> dinosaurs and stuff. Like, yeah, it's cool, but it's not really my thing. Being a, uh, being a blonde white guy in the jungle that never gets sunburned, you know. <laughs> yeah. Last part of it's the superpowers. But, um, <laughs> He's but like, got melanin without even having melanin. Is, exactly. Yeah. Stealth melanin. Um, yeah. But like, while that isn't like, like this t- type of stuff is, like, which says a lot about who I am, like, this is like sci-fi. Uh, it's space sci-fi. It's about the space race. It's set during the Cold War, especially in the sixties. Uh, it's about U.S. history and alt U.S. history, and um, the the lead is like uh, like a black guy. Like so, like this is a lot of stuff which is uh, like, like catnip for me. So, like this is the type of story that I find interesting because I love alt history stuff and I know a lot about us history so like the premise of this is really great where like uh the the main character is at cape canaveral and is there to like shut stuff down and it's like what yeah like what's going on like this is uh 1961 as it has in big letters like a big typeface like what's what's going on like this is this is when uh we're meant to be like going to the moon this is uh 
this is Kennedy saying like we, we do these things because they're hard or whatever the thing is to misquote it. But like, um, but yeah, we don't do them because they're easy. Blah 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 blah. Like this is all that. This is like we're going to the moon and like they they've beaten us to space, but they're not going to beat us to the moon type thing. And it's like whoa, things are being mothballed. So already there, it's interesting and. You got like the lead being mistaken for the janitor or whatever, and it's all very sort of like, like broken. Uh, like the dream is the dream is over because uh, like he's from MIT and he's he thought he was there. He thought he was there to do something cool, and it's like now nah, you're here to help us like clean up and move any of the the tech we've got over to defense because like it's like that's what's going to be ramping up right now. And it's like, at this point, we don't know, uh, like, who's president. So I'm thinking, like, oh, what's going on? And we get these really cool panels throughout um, where it's, like, different squares and rectangles are, like, pulled out. And you have this sort of universe frying thing going. It kind of feels like cosmic radiation where we get these broken panels. And, like, there's a really good panel earlier on where it's... um, we kind of have like what kind of looks like a star or some sort or something, but like it's on the there's like there's a panel which is all sort of like yellowish, and then we've got bits of space and they're kind of on like shutters which are at like different angles open mm. if you know what I mean. Where yeah. like say the middle one is closed and then the two to the left and right of it immediately are a bit a bit less closed. Like it has this cool sort of like your walking through dimensions in a way like you there's a fracturing of like time and space in a really cool way and and how it builds throughout the comic it's it feels like it's this um this background thing where it's like we're on the precipice of the truth and there's a lot of really cool paneling to do with that and how it interacts with uh with uh the lead character and how it how it connects uh dr pembroke how it connects uh him to this this wider conspiracy and the way the mystery is built is um i don't know it has this like because of the the uh the art it has this really cool like sort of period like like I think I think Sorrentino nails that type of it almost looks like high contrast like photographs from a different era where the 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 block shading like gives all the facial features and it like it looks like it could be photography from that era uh and but like the the color palette is like limited to like a few colors it has this really striking look to it which fits the subject matter for me and the time period and it because it deals with like this heavy shadow and heavy shadows on the face everything feels like you're in back rooms and like as you're delving into this mystery there could be a knock at the door and like is it g-men is it is it people from your government or is it the kgb or is it men in black from elsewhere? Like you never know. Like yeah. this is the thing where you hear a click on your phone and you're like, is someone listening to this? Like, what's going on? Um so it builds this sort of 
like conspiracy style paranoia as you as you as you deep, delve deeper, and then we're we're getting these flashes of uh, what could have happened to these animals that went up, and why were these space missions stopped? And holy crap, Nixon's president? Anyone in a landslide? What is this horrible reality? <laughs> and um, through simple things like that, it, it has so many implications for what the world looks like and for what the world is going to look like for the rest of the 60s. Yeah. Considering like the amount of social change and stuff that happens during that decade, especially in the US. Uh, or, or while like Vietnam's raging and everything. But like it... It really um like just hearing that nixon won landslide is chilling and knowing that nasa's closing down like just those two basic things are very chilling and they carry throughout the book and they say a lot with a very uh with quite a little um and i love that and i love how the the, sort of like the space imagery is it feels different like it it, it, it's just it's a mix of like black like geometry as well as cool sort of space vistas where you have like the, the spattering of stars and galaxies and stuff where, but also like fragmenting into, into cubes and stuff. And like, it, it's all very visual. You have like a really nice, uh, reference to one of my favorite album covers of all time. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it builds and builds and then it, it ends in, a way that has you going, let me read up uh, issue two. I need to read yeah. issue two because I want to go deep down this rabbit hole. So yeah, that's my unstructured, uh, broken into galaxy pieces, f- fragmented through dimension take on uh, on this book so far. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just like the fact that the space race stopped because they found something they didn't want to find. <laughs> yeah it's just like shit <laughs> stop stop leave it alone but yeah it's exciting it's fresh it's x-filesy it's like got that government conspiracy vibes like this is the this is the type of book where you just want to like set up a, a um a lamp with a a tape x in your window and then you want to like read this and read um the department of truth as well and then fall asleep on your sofa and then wake up to a dossier that's been shoved under your door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what you want to do. I, I think that will legit happen. I think if you, if you read, <laughs> read this and if you read Department of Truth back to back, that's yeah. legit going to happen. But you've got to, you've got to send your signal to Agent X. You've got to set up the desk lamp with the X in the window. You could mold the style, you know. Um, but yeah, it's like government conspiracy secrets, things that man was not meant to know. <laughs> Like somehow something cosmic and something from the beyond, which is really cool. Um, and there's this whole like time loop thing going on. It's like super trippy. It's disorientating and it's unnerving. And there's some really great effects used with page layout to get that across. Um, like you were talking about, like the way they panel it, panel it to accentuate it. There were like tiny panels overlaid on a large super panel, which I can only assume is depicting time shattering and moving in different moments simultaneously, like simultaneous frantic events. Um, I really do love it. It reminds me, actually, of some of the techniques used in Pax Americana from DC Multiversity. So there's this really beautiful Captain Atom page uh, that comes to mind where 
it kind of like towards the center of the page time just kind of like splits into smaller and smaller panels and think it gets almost like it gets infinitesimal like almost atomic and then it comes back out again out of the center of the page almost like time is ending and then beginning again because basically the way um pax americana is set up is it is uh the watchman story but with the characters that the watchmen are analogs of mm. um and this is the captain atom bit which is uh captain captain atom is uh is, is dr manhattan and because of the way Doctor Manhattan experiences time, this is how Captain At- Captain Atom experiences time in this book, and it's a really, really effective page. Um, and it's hard for me to describe it in masses of detail or coherently because it's just it's just so cool. And I think this has like a similar thing going on with these tiny little square panels laid over a larger panel, like time shattering, and then things happening simultaneously, all in small, different, tiny events. Um, and then you've got like the um, the vertical panel thing going on with like various vertical panels showing things happening from different angles because time is seven dimensional. I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, and then the Pink Floyd page. <laughs> I mean, like, how can you not? Like, is, is that time being refracted though? My money's on time. It's kaleidoscopic. This whole book is just kaleidoscopic and it's just, deep 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 prog hole shit like you could you could fall into a a a prog hole reading this like with your prog (laughs) prog rock on in the background and just fall asleep and then wake up in the back of a a black car between two dudes wearing suits and sunglasses (laughs) not answering any of your questions (laughs) until you get to the compound but yeah no it's just it's it's that kind of book and uh it's great it's great fun and um yeah i just want to see where it goes because there's some really really cool moments in it and uh yeah i just couldn't get past like seeing some of these pages and then being like pax americana because that's that's just how it felt to me that's just exactly how it felt and uh i commend it for that um now that is primordial and that is published by image comics um, that is a book by um, Jeff Lemire, Andrea Sorrentino, Dave Stewart is your colorist, Steve Wands is your lettering and design, and uh, editor Greg, Greg Lockhart. Um, yeah, Jeff Lemire, writer, and uh, Andrea Sorrentino, artist. Um, but I think Andrea Sorrentino would have had to, uh, has possibly had some creative input otherwise as well um, in the way that the book is actually credited. But yeah. Um, so that has been primordial and then i'm going to move on to my last one today uh which was just me um and this is something this was because of batman day so batman day came up um i did the um scales and scoundrel stream with the mayamada guys which um i think the vod is still live you can check that out but uh we got onto a conversation about uh art styles for specific kinds of story in comics and how you can use any art style to tell any kind of story and how it's more in um i guess it is it's more in cadence and in uh, imitation and how you 
how you dress that art style up and how you and the content of the actual story itself than it is in the art style the art style does not detract from so a more abstract um style with a cartoon edge is not going to detract from a serious narrative in that way um and i was able to prove that by showing a pay well i i my my um the evidence I had for that when I was presenting the case for this was I picked up my copy of Batman Ego and other tales um, and opened it to a random page and just went Darwin Cook. But yeah, so um, I wanted to discuss specifically the story Batman Ego. Um, and this is by the late great Darwin Cook uh, with lettering by John Babcock. So Darwin Cook wrote it and drew it. Um, now, I have this story as part of a collection called Batman Ego and Other Tales. Um, and this is something I read for Batman Day because Batman Day was the 18th of September. And um, I I thought, what better thing to do than read a Darwin Cook Batman story? Because Darwin Cook um, really was a, a force of nature with this kind of stuff. Like... So in this book that I have, in this collection, we have Batman Ego, we have Batman the Spirit, uh, so Batman Team Up with the Spirit, which is kind of cool, uh, Catwoman, Selina's Big Score, um, Killing Time, which is a Harley Quinn holiday special story, uh, Heavy Monsters, which is from Batman Black and White, um, and there's some other bits and pieces in there too. Um, it is a celebration of the DC work of Darwin Cook, uh, with an introduction by Amanda Connor, um, and uh, Batman Ego was originally a one-shot uh, with a cover date of August 2000. So it was originally published as a one-shot, cover date August 2000. It's not a long story. Um, and uh, it's just something really special and cool. And it has the added extra kind of like providence, like the fact that it's such a curio. Because legend goes, in the early 90s, uh, Cook was hired by Warner Brothers Animation. And he applied via an ad that he placed... Uh, via an ad that was placed by Bruce Tim for a storyboard artist. This ad was in the um, the comic book journal, and um, he basically the pitch that got him hired. Um, Fourteen pages of that pitch would eventually become this story, uh, Batman Ego. Um, Cook also like I mean like. Thinking about it, like this, this guy had such a hand in the childhoods of people that grew up on Batman TAS or other Warner Brothers animation, um, and like that, it, he just—I don't know—he he embodies that spirit in his work, mm. and even though his work is not the animated Warner Brothers stuff, and it's in the 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 DC universe proper, as it were, um. It's still, I don't know, like he carries that that spirit through, and it just it just has such a warm feeling when you're reading it. Um, and Cook also designed and animated the opening sequence for Batman Beyond. Mm, yeah, uh, which is a really is a pretty sick opening sequence as far as <laughs> it's, sequences it's an, go. It's an, it's an all timer. It's an all timer. Yeah, and the thing as well, yeah. it's not really even in the style that I think of when I close my eyes and think of Cook stuff. But it does fit that style like a lot. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, uh, Cook is an all timer. Like, yeah, oh, just, definitely. Yeah. Like, just like it, because I think the general look that I think of it, yeah, it has that sort of 
uh, TS like feel, but it's also it manages to balance looking like like a vintage sort of fifties thing in some way, especially like the character yeah. design, but yeah. also feeling like fun and kinetic. Like it doesn't just feel like like nostalgia inspired, but instead it, it's a, yeah a combination of like different influences that I, I think is it wears its influences a, on its sleeve. Yeah, and but, but like helps it be super striking, so it doesn't feel like a modern pastiche of those things. It no. it just feels like those were ingredients that he's mixed into a whole. Yeah, it, it's it's a um it's got like that that retro edge to it, that nineteen fifties vintage edge. Um but then it also has that silver age dynamism and yeah. pop that is just so hard to find um in other places and so yeah i mean this is it's a great batman story is it ego is a deep trip into the psyche of bruce wayne in a moment of extreme exhaustion pain uh he's questioning his mission in the life as he is wont to do at times when he loses faith in his work as the batman which happens numerous times over the history of the character uh we all know these types of tale goes back to the cave um kneels on the edge of the cave looking into the abyss um into the deep cavern um asking am i enough is this enough you know you know the way these things go uh you've read plenty of them cowl off um you know maybe sometimes some tears uh and then all of a sudden the cave answers and the bats swarm and uh his uh is his vigor and his uh his fight is renewed and off he goes back into the night to uh to bring justice to the streets of gotham but um with this one it's a little bit different um it's it it follows that kind of um it is it is batman questioning himself in the cave but it's a little bit deeper a little bit more cerebral a little bit more of a um a kind of a, a, a a trip into that kind of way of thinking and the way Bruce Wayne and Batman might think, especially under such extreme exhaustion and pain, uh, because he's just come back from, um, a, basically what, what happens is he's out there, um, sort of like busting up a Joker, a Joker thing, a Joker escapade. Um, and, um, he is tying up loose ends. He's already busted the Joker, um, and he is off to um, chase down uh, the guy who was his informant, who was actually the um, part of the Joker's gang. And uh, this guy is driving off with the money and Batman thinks he's just trying to make for it with the money. So Batman's chasing this guy down. Um, and what happens is something that is very traumatic for Batman himself, because in trying to do the right thing and in convincing this man to to be an informant and tell him what's going on with this Joker job, Batman has endangered this guy's life. And this guy is terrified, so terrified that he's murdered his wife and daughter and then kills himself in front of Batman. Batman can't stop him. Doesn't manage to stop him in time. Um, and obviously this, this breaks Bruce and Bruce goes back to the cave and Bruce has this conversation with himself. So this is a conversation between Bruce Wayne and Batman. Um, and it is like the very dark, 
very missing episode of the animated series. Um, it's touching in places and it's very deep and introspective. It's a real window into the mind and what makes Batman tick. We get these types of stories before where we, we get to see a lot of, they kind of like, writers like to do this with Batman especially. They like to lay it bare and they like to try and show us what makes these characters tick. And they like to do the whole dichotomy between Batman and the Joker and whatever else. Um, and this does that, but this does that on a different level and in a way that no one else has ever been able to do since or come close to, in my opinion. Um, I think this is the best example of that kind of story, actually. Um, it is one of the most pain-filled and introspective Batman books I've ever read. Uh, like we've just been discussing, Darwin's dynamic cartoon art um, in a very similar camp to what you will know from the Bruce Tim animations. Um, in a very similar style, it has this beautiful, shadowy, animated, like, flashes of silver age dynamism going on um and i love how unique and special it is and how it really does speak for the boundless talent of darwin cook like just this one story like i've got a, a collection here of his work and i'm just talking about one part of it right now Like i could break this down and i could spend probably a good half an hour talking about each bit and you know, one day I might, one day I might, I might get other people to read it so I can discuss it with them. But like, even the cover of the collection is like a animated series title card, like the, like a missing title card. It really is. Um, I cannot express enough my love for, for this story and how, how this story goes. Like this, this, this examination of Batman as a character in this conversation. Um, and this, this, the manifestation of that, like, how when he's having this conversation with himself like this is this is obviously in his head but the manifestation of the batman being this this formless well almost formless this shadow this this shadow composed of, of wrath and fear and failure and death and everything that built the batman and this force that must be tempered and that he must temper um and rein in in order for him to wield it positively to 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 stay on his side of that fine line that we know exists between Batman and his foes to, to keep doing what makes him different to the people that he's trying to put away and the people that he puts in Arkham day in and day out. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I just really loved it. And I just wanted to tell you all that I really loved it. <laughs> and, uh, I fully recommend it to anyone that wants to check out some decent Batman stories. Um, you know what? Like, if you want a great example of some Darwin Cook work, actually, that's a good place to go. Um, and I mean, like, I'm going to come across super biased because I'm a massive Darwin Cook stan, like I'm a massive Jack Kirby stan. But I can't express enough, like, how much of an impact, like, a hidden impact this guy's work will have had on you as a fan if you've ever been a fan of the animated series of Batman and things like that or any of the DC animated stuff, like inadvertently you're a fan of Darwin Cook because yes Bruce Tim is largely in the drive but like Darwin Cook did a lot of work on this stuff too um as a storyboard artist and and you know things like that and he created the intro for um the Batman um Batman Beyond uh and it's just it's just so like integral to that process and and then even shows in his work here in his in his work with DC Comics um, and it's definitely something to love. Definitely. Um, so yeah, go, uh, 
that was the way I celebrated Batman Day anyway, with some Darwin Cook stuff. Um, and yeah, so, uh, sad, I mean, I, I think I said up top, but sadly we lost Darwin Cook in 2016. Um, and um, boy, do we miss him. <laughs> he was a great artist. But yeah, there we go. Um, so Leon, yeah, I think you should check that one out. Yeah, it's on the list. It's um, it's one that I've heard about and seen, but I've never engaged with. Yeah, no, it's it's well worth a look, honestly. Like, even just for the for the the kind of like the um, the gimmick factor of it, it being originally a pitch for Batman TAS, you know, like a pitch that got him the job on as the storyboard artist on that show, kind of thing, or for Wilder Brothers. Um, like it's just the, the, the kind of like the story that goes, like the way that it developed from 14 pages in a pitch to this as well is really cool. Um, God, imagine an animated version of it on Blu-ray. I, imagine it. I don't think that that would be too far off, you know, cause those DC animated movies are, they're making their way through, through yeah, comics. Yeah, them out. Yeah, a good clip, and they've done. Yeah. They've what? Didn't they do uh, one of the early ones? Was based off a Cook comic, wasn't it? The um, the Green Lantern one. Um, uh, something flight or something like that. I can't yeah. remember the title, but that that one looked very Darwin Cook. Yeah, imagine imagine they took this and they released, and it was like like you know like Mask of the Phantasm. Um, because it would be, it would be very, very like Mask of the Phantasm if they did it right, if they did it how I wanted them to do it. Um, and I would be fully on board with that. Uh, totally 100% fully on board. I mean, we talked a lot about the live action Batman movies, but I think, uh, my favorite animated Batman movie without question is Mask of the Phantasm. I mean, that, that one, <laughs> uh, that one was like. You know, sometimes you think back to childhood and it's always like yeah. nostalgia glasses. Cause yeah. It's like elements of childhood, like entertainment you were in. They were like, this is just the best. They don't do this anymore, blah, blah. But like, we were very lucky to get that because like, oh obviously God, Batman yeah. TS is a kid show that doesn't feel like a kid show. Master of the Phantasm is not a kid show. It's yeah. not a kid's movie that uh, that doesn't feel like one. It, um, it just isn't. It, it's very yeah. much more an adult thing and not adult in... It's like sex violence, whatever. But it's just, it deals with way more mature themes even for the series. And I remember yeah. watching that at the time it came out and being like mind blown and feeling good because we were like, this is the time for me anyway, during the 90s where I was discovering like anime and stuff. It's like to have that and then a Master of the Fantasy. I felt, it felt magical. It felt like this weird sort of thing you're getting away with because like, what is this like, like really like, grown-up batman that they've given us it was yeah. uh yeah strange but awesome i ought not to be allowed to watch this yeah, you know? yeah it's like yeah i i um and it's held up perfectly as well yeah i had a conversation with my mum not long ago actually um and she was talking about and she's like oh do you mean the really dark one that you used to watch on cartoon network the batman show and i was like yeah and she's like that i didn't like you watching that <laughs> 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 and and i can i can almost see why um as a young kid my mum might have been like this is this is like kind of on the edge of what's acceptable yeah <laughs> but yeah no yeah definitely 
also to clarify myself from earlier, it was um, the second uh, of these DCAU movies, where it was Justice League, The New Frontier, which is based on Cook's um, DC, The New Frontier. Yeah. And, and like all, uh... the, all the designs are very Cook. Mm. Especially like Wonder Woman. The Wonder Woman, if you look at the cover, the Wonder Woman there is just emblematic of that type of look that I love with Cook stuff, like yeah. the, the character designs. But can you beat... Uh, Cook's Catwoman design. Like, honestly. Um, I've got a, um, like, a character sheet here of Cook Catwoman stuff. And just the facial expressions he puts on Selena. She just has this kind of, like... Um, I'm going to drop it in here so you can see. Um, but it's just... She has this kind of um, sneer. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's, it's Goggles Catwoman, which, I, which is yeah. my favourite. <laughs> Like you, you just can't beat that. You can't. There is no beating that. And yeah, like Darwin Cook, everybody. But yeah, go check out, go check out Batman Ego because it is, it is well worth it. And that brings us to the end of this one. So that has been uh, Ace Comicals episode one hundred and nineteen. And uh, you can find us anywhere you can find podcasts. You can find everything we do under the one banner at Um If you like what we do and you enjoy listening to us rabbit on about comics, then uh, we have a Kofi. And if you're feeling mighty generous, you can buy us a coffee. Um, also, uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter under at Bato. That's B-A-T-T-O-U. Uh, you can find us under Ace Comicals on Twitter, which is where we are most active. And if you want to... As DMs get involved in the conversation, uh, maybe add your two cents to some of the stuff we've mentioned today, then go ahead. Um, Leon, where can we find you? You can find me, as usual, on Twitter, at Leon Everett. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so that has been Ace Comicals 119. That is Ace Comicals, over and out.